Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental. To the victor go the speeches. Eusebius and the Oration in Praise of Constantine. Consider this episode your spring surprise. I know that last time I teased the next main episode, which is when we'll finally get to the actual Council of Nicaea, but I had a moment of inspiration, and I realized that we've talked about Constantine and his relationship to the church. This is the perfect time to talk about one of the most important speeches in the ancient world. Also, I realize that March has five weeks, and if I release on my every other week schedule, that's going to mess up my first and third week cadence that I've learned so well. So this week, we do have a diversion, but hopefully an intriguing one. So last time, we talked about Constantine's favor toward Christian bishops and the close alliance between church and empire that he began to create. We also discussed how one particular bishop, Eusebius of Caesarea, was especially keen to curry favor with Constantine. To get a better sense of just how this alliance worked, we're going to jump forward in time a little bit to the year 335. This year marked the 30th anniversary of Constantine's reign as emperor. Now, of course, this is only his 30th year if you ascribe his reign to as far back as 305, which is when he first announced to the world that his dad had totally made him an Augustus before he died. The other members of the Tetrarchy would have heavily disputed this, but seeing as they were all dead, and Constantine was alive, and had all the soldiers with pointy swords at his disposal, Constantine's version of the story won out. There was a big celebration for this 30th anniversary, and as part of that celebration, Eusebius of Caesarea prepared a particular kind of speech to honor him. This speech is called a panegyric, a fancy ancient word for a speech in which one tells the crowd how great someone is. It's a fascinating text, and it says a lot about theology, politics, history, and the connections between all three. So in today's episode, we're going to be doing a deep dive into this text and see what it says about the relationship between the emperor and the bishops, or at least what it says about the relationship between the emperor and those bishops coziest with his power. Eusebius starts out his speech by doing what all really good orators in the ancient world did. He warns us that he is not trying to be super eloquent or entertaining, so please forgive him if this speech isn't as moving as you'd hoped. Eusebius isn't saying this because he has a cold or thinks his speech isn't any good. On the contrary, he is one of the best trained orators in the whole empire, giving what may well be the most important speech of his life. He would have spent months preparing this. He knows full well this is a good speech. But in the Roman world, good speeches usually began with something called a captatio benevolentiae, which is an impressive-sounding Latin phrase that could be translated as the capturing of goodwill. The goal was to get the crowd on your side from the beginning of your speech, so that they will be predisposed to like what you're saying. 
To see how this works, take a look at Eusebius's exact words. Here is how the speech begins, and I quote, I come not forward prepared with a fictitious narrative, nor with elegance of language to captivate the ear, desiring to charm my hearers, as it were, with a siren's voice. Nor shall I present the draught of pleasure in cups of gold decorated with lovely flowers, I mean, the graces of style, to those who are pleased with such things. Rather would I follow the precepts of the wise, and admonish all to avoid and turn aside from the beaten road, and keep themselves from contact with the vulgar crowd. End quote. In other words, Eusebius says, Sorry guys, I didn't bring a bunch of super elegant words or fun stories to entertain you, but you know what, this is better, because we are wise people. And wise people want more than entertainment, don't they? So follow me and let's talk about things the silly rubes would never have the patience to sit through. Eusebius is very clever. He's essentially complimenting the audience on being sophisticated enough to listen to his speech. It's no different than when Tom Brokaw goes to a college commencement address. He'll often begin by stating that he's so glad to be there because he can use all the big words that he couldn't use when he was visiting their rival school. That is the Captatio Benevolentiae at work. Once Eusebius has captured the audience's goodwill, he goes on to start actually praising things. And he starts not by praising Constantine, but by praising God, since God is actually the greatest emperor of all. And everyone knows how great God is. The entire Roman Empire worships him, for starters. Eusebius is exaggerating, of course. At most, Christians make up 50% of the empire at this point in history. But since this is supposed to be a celebratory occasion, he feels entitled to round up. More than humanity, though, all of nature acknowledges God's existence by the very fact of being ordered and arranged according to God's plans. So, too, the angels and other heavenly beings praise God. And then, most importantly of all, the Father is worshipped by the Son. This part of the panegyric is worth quoting in full. Lastly, he who is in all, before and after all, his only begotten pre-existent word, the great high priest of the mighty God, elder than all time and every age, devoted to his Father's glory, first and alone makes intercession with him for the salvation of mankind. Supreme and preeminent ruler of the universe, he shares the glory of his Father's kingdom, for he is that light which, transcendent above the universe, encircles the Father's person, interposing and dividing between the eternal and uncreated essence and all derived existence. That light which streaming from on high proceeds from that deity who knows not origin or end, and illumines the super-celestial regions and all that heaven itself contains with the radiance of wisdom bright beyond the splendor of the sun. This is he who holds a supreme dominion over this whole world, who is over and in all things, and pervades all things visible and invisible. The Word of God from whom and by whom our divinely appointed emperor, receiving as it were a transcript of the divine sovereignty, directs, in imitation of God himself, the administration of this world's affairs. There is a whole lot to unpack in these words. 
They also give us a good indication of why the Homoousians might have preferred to just burn the whole suitcase. First of all, you will notice that Jesus Christ is mentioned as the last in a series of created beings who praise the Father, starting with humanity, then the whole physical world, then the heavenly beings, and finally, Jesus. In other words, Eusebius is presenting Jesus as simply another part of creation. The highest and best part, sure, but still a part of creation which is precisely the sort of thing that made the Homoousians wish that blood pressure medication had already been invented. You will also notice that the sun plays the kind of intermediary role the Eusebii and their friends were so fond of. He is a divider and mediator between the Father's eternality and created things, probably so that creation doesn't have to bear the Father's unbearable touch. Athanasius will spend most of his career savaging precisely this idea. And finally, Jesus is the means by which Constantine has authority to rule, giving Constantine a sort of transcript of God's sovereignty that allows Constantine to rule in place of God. Now, those of us who live in 2023 and beyond tend to get the heebie-jeebies at any implication that a ruler stands in the place of God. In ancient times, though, it was simply taken for granted that this was the way the world worked. God appoints rulers, therefore rulers have their authority from God. Eusebius then goes on to point out in detail the parallels between Jesus and Constantine. Just as Jesus orders the whole cosmos in accordance with the Father's will, Constantine orders the Roman Empire to be less of a flaming dumpster fire than it had been under the Tetrarchy. Okay, he doesn't put it quite like that, but there would have been many people alive who remembered those chaotic days and were quite glad to have them behind them. So the implication is definitely there, I think. But even more to the point, just as Jesus offers salvation to all in the church, Constantine offers salvation to all in the empire by making Christianity the official state religion. Anybody can become a Christian now without fear of reprisal, and anybody can have knowledge of the true God. Eusebius then goes on to talk about how great the Caesars that Constantine has appointed are, and how Constantine is like the sun that illumines the whole empire through the work of his Caesars. And just like the Caesars draw their power from Constantine, Constantine draws his power from God, by being as much like God in knowledge and virtue as possible. Then Eusebius goes on to make a short digression that modern theologians have made much of. Eusebius talks about how monarchy is definitely the best form of government. Democracy is just anarchy, and therefore very, very bad. And he says this is exactly like the fact that there can only be one god, not two or three or more. Because if there were two or three gods, well, then they'd just be fighting with each other and conflicting, and there would be no real rule or order at all. Which is the same thing as saying there wouldn't really be any god, just a couple of heavenly beings who couldn't get their act together enough to stop fighting. So, just like there is one god in heaven calling the shots, there can only be one emperor calling the shots on earth. Now, a modern theological movement called social trinitarianism has become very interested in this passage, 
in part because Eusebius's Nicene skeptical theology goes hand in glove with his imperial politics. The Father has to rule alone, so the Son and Holy Spirit can't be on equal footing with him, just so the relationship between Constantine and his Caesars. Social Trinitarians will argue that a robust Nicene theology can provide a groundwork for democratic politics. Just as God is a community of persons who share power among themselves, so human society should be structured as an egalitarian democratic community. We'll be delving more into this idea at the end of the series, so don't worry if it's unfamiliar to you. But for now, just know that social Trinitarians see in Eusebius an example of everything they are against. Eusebius, blissfully ignorant of how mad he will make theologians 18 centuries later, continues on with his course by giving us a brief description of salvation history. We can't know of the invisible God with our physical senses. For that, we need our intellects, which were given to us by the Word of God. Eusebius says that our rationality is the image of God in us, because it is what makes us able to comprehend the world as a sign of God's presence. Interestingly, Eusebius also says that the Word is at one with his Father's divine nature here which may not have sat well with some of his friends. Remember that Eusebius tends to have a slightly higher view of the son's divinity than others in his school. He takes more of a Spider-Man view rather than the Batman view of the son's power. And unlike his friends, Eusebius never indicates that the son's knowledge of the father is limited in any way. Eusebius then goes on to say that Constantine is worthy to be an emperor because he has conformed himself to this divine image that Christ implanted in him. Constantine prays a lot because his mind is fixed on eternal things rather than temporal things. When he goes into battle, he doesn't think about how awesome he is, but how he's just a man like others. And even when surrounded by imperial wealth, he handles it with temperance and abstinence. Eusebius sums up his rhapsodic praise for the emperor by describing him as follows, and I quote, Above the thirst of wealth, superior to sexual desire, victorious even over natural pleasures, controlling, not controlled by, anger and passion. He is indeed an emperor, and bears a title corresponding to his deeds, a victor in truth, who has gained the victory over those passions which overmaster the rest of men, whose character is formed after the divine original of the supreme sovereign, and whose mind reflects as like a mirror the radiance of his virtues. Hence is our emperor perfect in discretion, in goodness, in justice, in courage, in piety, in devotion to God. He truly and only is a philosopher, since he knows himself and is fully aware that supplies of every blessing are showered on him from a source quite external to himself, even from heaven itself, declaring the august title of supreme authority by the splendor of his vesture, he alone worthily wears that imperial purple which so well becomes him. Eusebius then continues describing how the Father gave all creation over to the Son to rule, and how Constantine has now shared in that rule for 30 years. God approves of Constantine's rule by extending his reign beyond these 30 years. Remember, it is a really big deal that Constantine has been on the throne this long. 
Diocletian only managed 20, and before and after him, well, we've seen how long those Roman emperors reigned. So, the fact that Constantine reigned for so long was seen as a sign of divine favor. And Eusebius then goes into a whole bunch of mathematical puns about this, showing how 30 is a perfect number because it's comprised of the perfect numbers 3 and 10. It honestly feels a little forced to me. I think 7 is a much better number than 3 or 10, so we're just going to skip that part. Besides, the next thing on the panegyric agenda is far more interesting. Eusebius goes on to talk about Constantine's defeat of idolatry. To hear Eusebius tell it, there are two kinds of enemies that plague the Roman body politic. The barbarians, who loot and pillage and just generally make a mess of things in the physical world, and the demons, who attack the souls of humanity with far more cunning and brutality than even the most powerful barbarian warlord. These internal foes tricked all of humanity into polytheism instead of worshipping the one true god. And so, human beings, not knowing the true god, deified parts of the natural life as gods. Wine, food, the harvest, and even death. And so it went until God appointed a mighty victor who would destroy all the demons and bring all people back to the worship of the true God. You might be thinking Eusebius was talking about Jesus, but no, silly! He means Constantine! For by unifying the Roman Empire and defeating the barbarians, Constantine overcame the enemies of the body. By making Christianity the state religion, he defeated the enemies of the soul. Eusebius is at pains to point out that unlike the barbarians, Constantine conquered through persuasion rather than brute force. Nobody was forced to convert to Christianity. Like a kindly father, Constantine spared them that and instructed them in godliness until they saw the light. But that tolerance has its limits, because then Eusebius goes on to crow about how Constantine ordered that a bunch of pagan temples be destroyed. He takes particular delight in the destruction of a temple of Venus in Phoenicia, describing all the lurid sexual rituals that happened on the daily until Constantine finally put a stop to it. One imagines that some of the pagan listeners might have been thinking of those days rather fondly and been rather unhappy about this part of the speech. But since Constantine was in attendance along with a bunch of heavily armed guards, they apparently didn't press the point. We then hear more about Constantine's great piety, how he taught his soldiers to pray before battle, how he used the sign of the cross to defeat his enemies, how he built lots of fancy churches in important places. Notice how closely Eusebius identifies victory with correct theology. For him, the fact that Constantine conquers in the name of Christ, and does so successfully, is proof of God's favor. It is also proof that the Christian God is supreme over all others. One imagines that this would have sat very comfortably with Constantine's own vision of his God, prizing unity and victory above all else. For Eusebius, the cross's power is shown precisely in these visible trappings of success. He says that if you want to see proof of the cross's power, you look no further than its effects in Constantine. And I quote, 
Hence the universal change for the better, which leads men to spurn their lifeless idols, to trample underfoot the lawless rites of their demon deities, and laugh to scorn the time-honored follies of their fathers. Hence, too, the establishment in every place of those schools of sacred learning, wherein men are taught the precepts of saving truth, and dread no more those objects of creation which are seen by the natural eye, nor direct a gaze of wonder at the sun, the moon, or stars, but acknowledge him who is above all these, the invisible being who is the creator of them all, and learn to worship him alone. End quote. But Eusebius also knows that for all that has happened, the work is not done. Because then he turns around and says to Constantine, Okay, now let me just explain the whole of Christian doctrine right now. Not because you don't know it. I mean, you are taught by God, O oh great Constantine. But so that all the listeners know exactly why you've done the amazing things you have done. We're going to skip most of this explanation because it's long, and it's mostly stuff you are probably already familiar with. But Eusebius gives a fascinating account of the word's relationship to the Father that is very important for our story. He repeats the things he has said previously, that the reason for the word's existence is because created things are simply too imperfect to have direct access to the Father. They need some kind of intermediary, and that's what the word is there for. He also goes on to say this is kind of like the way that human minds work. You don't technically know that any other person in this world has a mind. You don't have direct access to it. And depending on how they are acting, you might rather doubt it. But you know they have a mind because of the words they speak. Those words are expressions of their mind. Just so, Eusebius says, with the Father and the Word. The Father remains hidden and inaccessible. We know him through his word. That's how the Father expresses himself. Notice again the prevalence of that psychological metaphor we first observed in Tertullian. The word is the Father's principle of communication or internal dialogue. It's coming up right here again with Eusebius. It also lines up very well with the theology we'd expect to hear from Arius and the other Eusebian friends. But Eusebius of Caesarea is an interesting case because immediately after saying that, he launches into a praise of the word with some pro-Nicene elements in it. And I quote, Intermediate as it were, and attracting the created to the uncreated essence, this word of God exists as an unbroken bond between the two, uniting things most widely different by an inseparable tie. He is the providence which rules the universe, the guardian and director of the whole. He is the power and wisdom of God, the only begotten God, the word begotten of God himself. Note how close Eusebius is to some of the terms of the Nicene Creed. The word is the only begotten God, and he even calls him the power and wisdom of God, which is often used by the Homoousians. Yet he preserves the intermediate function of the word as a go-between. And despite all the time he spends describing the relationship between the word and the father, he has very little to say about the status of the word himself. You'll notice that the word is intermediate between created and uncreated essence, with the status of the word's essence conveniently left undefined. There is, in fact, no discussion of the word's substance anywhere in this oration. 
if you feel sympathetic to Eusebius, you might think that's because he sees no contradiction between his thought and the recently ratified Nicene Creed. It's all great. If you are not sympathetic to him, you might think that he is trying to have his cake and eat it too. The Road to Nicaea, now brought to you by having your cake and eating it too. Lay down the melancholy burden of sanity. Cast off the chains of non-contradiction. Enjoy all of what life has to offer, and I mean all of it. Get that sweet and salty dessert. Be a married bachelor. Affirm Nicaea, but also go off and do your own thing, mostly. Having your cake and eating it too. They call it nonsense. We call it containing multitudes. After Eusebius describes the word and all the things that he has been doing to keep the universe running, he then decides that everybody really needs to hear why the word became incarnate. And it all comes back to polytheism. Human beings had stopped worshipping the true God and instead were deifying all sorts of other things. Sometimes, like we said, they deified heroes and emperors of yore or the forces of nature. However, Eusebius also believes that most commonly, human beings were tricked into worshipping evil spirits, demons posing as gods. This is a pretty common belief in late antiquity. Christians did not necessarily think that the miracles attributed to pagan gods and their heroes were all fake. Rather, they believed that non-Christian gods were demons who had the power to do certain kinds of miraculous deeds. Now, why would demons go to such an effort to trick humans? Well, there are any number of reasons. They are demons, after all, and stealing worshippers from the one true god seems like a suitably devilish thing to do. But Eusebius also gives another reason. That the demons were hungry, and they wanted a snack. In the ancient world, it was common to leave food as a sacrifice for one's gods. Either you burned the food so that it sent a pleasing aroma up to heaven, or you left the food in the temple to be consumed the next time the gods supposedly visited, or, more likely, the next time a priest got hungry and took the food when nobody was looking. According to Eusebius, the demons wanted in on this delicious spiritual smorgasbord, so they started hanging around pagan temples and acting like gods and giving prophecies and talking to people and stuff so they could get their hands on the really good grub. The goal of the Incarnation, then, was to remind humanity of who the real God was. Jesus did this throughout his life, through his many miracles and perfect character. But above all, he did it through the cross, by proving that he alone could triumph over death. Through his resurrection, he showed everyone that he was stronger than death, and hence stronger than all the so-called gods who had not dared to become incarnate and face death. After going in-depth to describe how the Incarnation was God's ultimate triumph over the demons, Eusebius then makes very brief mention of another reason for the words Incarnation, to be a sin offering for humanity's guilt. But not all the sins of humanity, Eusebius only mentions the sin of demon worship incurred by the polytheists. Perhaps he thought all the other sins were atoned for too, but only mentioned polytheism because that was such a prominent theme in this speech. So that wraps up the salvation history narrative that Eusebius has been telling. You might think he'd return now to the actual job of the speech, namely praising the Emperor Constantine. 
And he does in a roundabout way. Eusebius says that it's now time to prove the truth of that narrative of Christianity, to prove that everything he has told you is absolutely true. And the proof is the existence of the Roman Empire. The basic idea is this. Before the Incarnation, humanity was in the thrall of demons worshipping all sorts of bad things, and as a consequence, they were divided into different nations and kept going to war with each other. But then Rome came along and conquered the entire world. I'm not paraphrasing, Eusebius literally uses the phrase entire world. And of course, those conquests led to the famous Pax Romana, the peace Rome enforced over its territories. Eusebius sees this as proof of the truth of Christianity. For Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 prophecies that when the Messiah emerges, nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and study war no more. God gave the Roman Empire dominion over the whole world to allow for peace. Then Christianity could spread throughout the peaceable empire and displace the worship of all the other false gods, which, in Eusebius's day, is exactly what had happened. Now, you probably have some bones to pick with this argument. The irony of saying that the Roman Empire brought peace and caused the world to beat their swords into plowshares is never more apparent than when you are addressing the Emperor of Rome, flanked by a bunch of Roman soldiers with very pointy, not-at-all-beaten swords. And while the Roman Empire was massive, it did not cover the whole world. You could imagine Christians in the neighboring Persian Empire throwing up their hands and muttering, Dude, we are literally right next door. We are literally right here. As they heard Eusebius erase them in his polytheism pulverizing panegyric. But there was an even more obvious counterexample for Eusebius's audience. The Great Persecution. The very same Roman Empire that Eusebius was praising so loudly had only 30 years before been torturing and butchering Christians for practicing their faith. But Eusebius will turn this to his rhetorical advantage, for he sees Constantine's wars against the other emperors as God's retribution for their persecution of Christians. Constantine now reigns supreme. Galerius, Diocletian, Licinius and all the other persecutors lie defeated and forgotten. The persecution was terrible, but the death of all the persecutors is proof in Eusebius's mind of God's supreme providence. And with that, Eusebius ends his speech and turns the floor back over to Constantine, but not before giving him a few suggestions as to what he might talk about sometime. I'll quote his ending in full. These words of ours, however, gracious sovereign, may well appear superfluous in your ears, convinced as you are by frequent and personal experience of our Savior's deity. Yourself also, in action still more than words, a herald of the truth to all mankind. Yourself, it may be, will vouchsafe at a time of leisure to relate to us the abundant manifestations which your Savior has accorded you of his presence, and the oft-repeated visions of himself which have attended you in the hour of sleep. I speak not of those secret suggestions which are to us unrevealed, but of those principles which he has instilled into your own mind, and which are fraught with general interest and benefit to the human race. 
you will yourself relate in worthy terms the visible protection which your divine shield and guardian has extended in the hour of battle, the ruin of your open and secret foes, and his ready aid in time of peril. To him you will ascribe relief in the midst of perplexity, defense in solitude, expedience in extremity, foreknowledge of events yet future, your forethought for the general good, your power to investigate uncertain questions, your conduct of most important enterprises, your administration of civil affairs, your military arrangements, and correction of abuses in all departments, your ordinances respecting public right, and lastly, your legislation for the common benefit of all. You will, it may be, also detail to us those particulars of his favor which are secret to us, but known to you alone, and treasured in your royal memory as in secret storehouses. In other words, Eusebius suggests that Constantine might tell the crowds basically exactly what Eusebius has already told them which is a rather bold way to end a speech to the most powerful man in the world. And it brings us back to that larger question. What exactly was it that Eusebius was hoping to accomplish in this speech? Was it to praise Constantine? Well, clearly in part, but as you now know, he doesn't actually spend that much time praising Constantine. Was it to curry favor? If so, he should have spent more time on the praising and less on the sermonizing. Did he just want to give a sermon to a captive audience then? Well, possibly, but the speech isn't structured like a sermon, and its themes are much broader than what we would expect from a sermon. I suspect that Eusebius is trying to thread several needles here in order to achieve his true end, which is to proclaim a political theology that legitimizes the established Christian church, encourages future emperors to maintain Christian piety, and places limits on the emperor's authority should he fail to do so. Let me explain with an example from a very different Roman emperor. Some of you know that Charles the Great, more commonly known as Charlemagne, was proclaimed the first Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day in 800 AD after establishing a vast empire. The story goes like this. Charlemagne came into church that morning and knelt down to pray as part of the service. Then, suddenly and apparently without warning, while he was praying, Pope Leo took a crown from the altar, placed it on his head, and hailed him as the Holy Roman Emperor. In so doing, the Pope sent a clear message. I have the power to make kings, and I have the power to depose them. Eusebius is, I think, trying to make a similar move with Constantine. He is well aware that not all emperors are as friendly with Christians as Constantine is, and he lived through the horrors of the Great Persecution. So the message he wants to send is very simple. God makes emperors, and God can depose emperors. When an emperor is pious and imitates the virtues of Christ, he has almost unlimited power. Eusebius basically says he rules the empire like a sort of mini-god. But when an emperor doesn't do those things, when he doesn't worship the true God, then he is illegitimate and liable to divine retribution and removal, just like Constantine's predecessors. In the context of Eusebius' day, 
one can see why he might have chosen this rhetorical strategy. And we can even applaud his courage. It's not an easy thing to speak of the limits of the emperor's power to his face. In our own context, though, I suspect, frankly, I hope, that you are disturbed by this line of thought. For Eusebius, human beings are worthy of power when they act in accordance with how things are, when they understand the way the world works, when they are wise and not foolish, virtuous and not vicious, when they serve the true God and not false gods. All of which sounds good enough. I mean, who wants a foolish, vicious ruler? But then, of course, the question inevitably arises. Who gets to decide which god is the true one? Who gets to decide which person is wise and which is foolish? Eusebius's answer, basically, is that the church gets to decide. He, as bishop, is up there telling us the way the world works and what we need to conform ourselves to. We don't have to look far today to see the horrors that theocratic governments can wreak on human lives. Eusebius's logic is ultimately the logic of totalitarianism, and his theocratic logic is closely tied to his Christology. As I said above, Eusebius's image of a solitary, unrivaled father who gives commands to his son, who then runs the world in his stead, well, that maps perfectly onto the Roman Empire where one Augustus parcels out tasks for his Caesars. But Eusebius is trying to do more than make subtle parallels. He presents Jesus Christ as a conqueror, as victorious over the demons through his death and resurrection, in much the same way Constantine is victorious over them in his own struggles. And of course, his long expositions of the role of the Incarnate Word were also an attempt to expound and promote his own theology, which was still quite controversial ten years after Nicaea. To understand why, we'll have to turn back the clock and finally arrive at that dramatic council where the future panegyrist is so desperate to prove his orthodoxy. For Eusebius of Caesarea, the road to imperial honor and speechcraft was but a continuation of that long and winding road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Author Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.